0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. We are on the Compliance Podcast Network, and you can also find us on our website at Corporate Compliance Insights. I'm so happy to have Michelle Abraham here as my first guest after our autumn hiatus. Uh, Michelle is Senior Director, Ethics and Compliance and Associate General Counsel at Cooper Standard. She's based in Cleveland. When I heard her speak about ESG at the SCCE conference in September, I found her afterwards to ask if she joined me on GWIC, and I'm so thrilled that she did that. After that, I realized we were both co-finalists for the Innovation and Compliance Awards from Compliance Week. Um, we have some great, great topics today, so let's get started. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Tell us about you, your career, and how you got to where you are now.
1: Lisa, likewise, thank you for this invitation to join the Great Women in Compliance community. It's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to share a conversation today, and I look forward to learning from each other. You may recall uh, my parting words of advice at the SEC panel that I spoke on to the audience were to pursue ESG with the same passion and purpose that we entered into the ethics and compliance profession. And I will say that that advice truly reflects my heart and soul and my my own journey um, from a business litigator to an ethics and compliance leader, and now a member of our Global Sustainability Council supporting our company's ESG initiatives. By way of background, I grew up in Gross Point, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, which is actually where Cooper Standard is headquartered. So it's kind of a full circle moment for me uh, to be working with a company headquartered in Detroit while living in Cleveland. I attended Denison University, which is in Granville, Ohio, just outside of Columbus and actually began my career uh, from Denison with Bank One, which is now JPMorgan Chase in internal audit. (laughs) I knew when I graduated from undergrad, I would eventually go back uh, to graduate school, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to study or where I wanted to study. So I took that opportunity to join the bank and quickly decided after about a year of 100% travel and audit work that it was time to go back to grad school. So I pursued the JD MBA program at Case Western Reserve University, which is a four-year program. And for those of you that are early on in your educational uh, career paths, I highly recommend uh, that dual degree opportunity. You get to study both the law as well as business, and it's very relevant for any career path that you might decide to pursue. While at Case, I had the opportunity to serve as the editor-in-chief of the internetlawjournal.com That time it was the dot-com boom and there were lots of legal questions coming up about how the law would adjust or maybe not even adjust and maybe create a whole new area of law uh, with respect to the internet and in particular e-commerce i joined the law firm thompson hine which is headquartered in cleveland ohio and actually split my time between proactive privacy compliance work and more traditional e-business-related business business litigation. And that was the first opportunity that I saw that really pulled my attention um, to be able to see that contrast between reactive litigation and proactive compliance. And that was when my uh, compliance journey truly began. Um, I was with the law firm for about seven years as a summer associate and then full-time associate and then moved in-house to lead the program at the Timken Company, which was headquartered in Canton, Ohio, and really built the program there with the chief compliance officer at the time, and then ultimately took on full responsibility for the program after he retired. And I'm proud to say that uh, we were so successful, we earned recognition by Ethisphere Institute for being among the world's most ethical companies seven times under our leadership. Um, After about 10 years at Timken, I was contacted by the recently retired general counsel of Cooper Standard and asked if I would be interested in joining the team to help improve their ethics and compliance program and processes to reflect their commitment to world-class integrity. Um, Everything that our company embarks upon really is with that foundation of seeking to be world-class and set the standard. So about four years ago, I made the leap and joined Cooper Standard, and that's really when this ESG um, opportunity presented itself. So I joined Cooper Standard, uh, obviously, to do the work for ethics and compliance. I was co-chairing enterprise risk management, and then at the time was one of three individuals leading our ESG initiatives. And since that point in time, we've evolved. We've actually formed a global sustainability council. Uh, which I'm a member of, and is um, an important part of the work that we do to ensure that we achieve our strategic objectives when it comes to sustainability.
0: Oh wow, yeah, and I mean, ESG is the hot topic lately. Obviously, you spoke about it. What I thought was a pretty provocative part of your uh, um, of, of your panel, and something that really struck me right away was the title. It was with the fabulous Jim Massey, too. I think yeah. canceling the it was called canceling the compliance culture. While it was a part of a larger discussion about ESG and compliance. I just thought it was fascinating. And and talking to you about what this means to you and that title, I thought, again, what does it mean to cancel the compliance culture and what did it mean to you?
1: Yes, Elisa, as I shared with the audience that day, um, quite candidly, honestly, as a panelist, (laughs) Um, I had a strong negative reaction um, you know as an ethics and compliance professional who's been in this space for many, many years. Um, the idea of canceling the compliance culture it was almost offensive. Um, and so I was a bit resistant, um, but I thought, you know, there must be something in that. Um, and so I want to hear what they're thinking and then I'll ultimately decide. And in that first conversation with Jim Massey, who is truly a dynamic individual and so fun to talk with and learn from, I realized it wasn't about canceling anything it's really about continuing to innovate and continuously improve so that we can meet the demands of the modern world that we're working in. And that canceling word you know, carries a lot of emotion in it, and it's very um, political and it's a hot topic. And so I think it was a great way to grab the attention of the audience as the opening general session and have a provocative discussion about the state of compliance and what we're doing to ensure that we remain relevant and continue to evolve not only as a profession, but make our programs relevant for the people that we live and work with.
0: Yeah, I know it, it, it was kind of a shocking title right away, but uh, <laughs> it may, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially right now we're talking about, this is you know coming out during Compliance Week from SCCE. So we're all talking about compliance culture. So I found that slightly ironic as well. Um, yeah. The other thing about it though, as, as ethics and compliance professionals, from your experience, what do you think we should be having on our must-do list for, our, for a successful ESG program? Because a lot of people are in very early phases of this or are you know, trying to figure out how to make an ESG program, same, similar to what we did with ethics and compliance. So what do you see as the musts?
1: Yeah. So the first thing is um, really recognizing that ESG or corporate responsibility or sustainability, whatever it's known as within your organization or in your industry, is an opportunity. Um, And I know our plates are full. I know um, from our own experience as ethics and compliance professionals, when ERM or enterprise risk management came our way, we all resisted it because it was yet one more thing that we needed to do. But just like ERM, which is now a part of our daily lives from a risk assessment and risk management perspective, ESG is a critical opportunity and yet is another place where we can demonstrate value and how we can support the organization in ensuring that its strategy remains on track. So that's number one, is see that there's an opportunity there. Second, Take a deep breath and realize that much of what makes up the E, the S, and the G already exists in your ethics and compliance program, particularly the S and the G. So E stands for environmental, S stands for social, and G stands for governance. When you look at the topic of governance, your legal department, which is where many compliance functions live, and your compliance team already are doing a lot of the work that is being expected to be reported on when it comes to governance topics. In fact, ethics and compliance is actually one of the topics on the list of material topics for governance. Likewise, enterprise risk management and how your company's managing risks also roll up under the G. From the S, the social perspective, All of those policies that we spend hours and hours benchmarking and drafting and then ultimately implementing and communicating and monitoring compliance with roll up under the S. Think of things like human rights, conflict minerals, conflicts of interest, uh, wellness and welfare, both for your employees and the communities where we live and work. So while it may seem overwhelming because it is a new topic and it's a new framework for many of us, much of the work that's going on is already being done. And so it's about bringing it together, being transparent and having a reporting mechanism in place so that your stakeholders get visibility to that work. Third, Learn the lingo. Um, There are some wonderful white papers out there. You can very quickly get up to speed. SCCE, for example, is having a one-day webinar on ESG that's really geared towards ethics and compliance professionals. You can hear about it from the perspective of our industry. Um, But there's great white papers from the accounting firms, from many law firms, um, YouTube videos, podcasts and the like, um, take some time, even if it's just an hour a week and start to learn so that you can bring that the good questions back to your organization to find out where you are in the maturity of ESG and how you can best support it. And then finally, um, engage. Um, I think you've really got to be talking to your leadership team. Don't sit in the compliance box. This is a great place where you can be a member of the leadership team. I know there are some ethics and compliance professionals that that will advocate that we should take this on and and formally lead. Um, But there is a significant operational component. And you'll notice I left out the E, so the environmental piece. For many companies, especially manufacturers, um, I'm in the automotive industrial manufacturing space, but you know, many manufacturers out there. This really goes to how you source the inputs to your products that you manufacture, how you operate your plants, decisions that you're making about electricity and water and gas. And that is a space where I do think the folks that lead your manufacturing operations are better candidates to lead. So while you can bring the programs and processes and the expertise, it's critical to have a, a core team of individuals that represent all the parts of the business to be most um, successful in your implementation.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was actually going to, to add that point as well the, about the E and ESG, because I say that all the time, you know, in sort of an informal way, I don't think, I mean, people would like me to deal with my own carbon footprint, my own electricity, all the things that I want to do to be a better global citizen. But I have zero, I don't, I'm not adding something to the discussion when it is, regardless if it's manufacturing or it's office space or your footprint. Like, there, you know, it's a question of how much can we take on and do well? That to me, the environmental consequences of things, it's too much. It's too much to learn. And to me, the, as you said, the S and the G, I mean, that's very much us. And I think that it's fantastic that way. Um, the other thing that um, you, that you were talking about, the other person who's written some really good stuff for compliance from, from compliance folks is Allison Taylor. Um, yes. She's written some really great things with some great graphics. We had her on at one point, but she really does make these things very understandable. Um,
1: Actually, Allison and I were on a SCCE panel together, and um, she is fantastic. She's a great person to follow on LinkedIn and also has some great white papers that that appeal to our point of view as ethics and compliance professionals. Yeah. And, to, you know, Lisa, you just made the comment about um, the E being it really has its own professional space. Right. So we're not going to expect non-lawyers to learn the law the same way we're not going to expect lawyers to learn environmental practices. And so um, there is an opportunity there for everyone to, to rise to the occasion and lead with the expertise they bring to the table.
0: Absolutely on that. Um, another thing that I'm going to change the topic a little from this to another thing that you're really well known for um, is it the um, risk assessment that you've developed. Um, can you just give a few practical tips? I know there's a lot on this topic, but For someone who's putting one together, again, similarly to someone who starts out, sometimes I think we know how important they are. So I think one of the things I see is we sometimes make them a little more complicated than they need to be and not always as easy to communicate to the people that we're we're working with. So I just wanted to know, um, you know, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, Lisa, I couldn't agree more. I think the risk assessment process has become so Um, over-engineered that we may have scared some of our own peers away. Um, But if you think about it, the entire purpose behind the risk assessment process is to be able to walk out of the room knowing what your top three to five risks are so that you can design an ethics and compliance process that's got training and communication, a good policy framework, audit and monitoring in place, so that you're managing that risk proactively. So while Survey tools and focus groups and interviews and complicated uh, uh, programs can help consolidate information and build a sophisticated heat map that may also prevent you from quickly and effectively identifying your most important risks. And, you know, I really, my current CEO um, really helped bring this to life because when we went, sat down to present our global heat map, we had so many bubbles with different sizes because the size of the bubble is our speed of onset. And then you're looking at likelihood and impact that people were actually starting to like argue over where their bubble was on the map. And, and he so very clearly said, I don't care where the bubble is. Does that risk matter? And should 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 someone in this room own it? <laughs> and it was such a moment mm-hmm. where we were able to step back. We actually have put our heat map aside now. We still go through the process of rating, impact, likelihood, and speed of onset. And we have one slide that identifies within the class of risk. So we actually, we do our compliance risk assessment as part of our overall enterprise risk assessment. And we have four to five risks in each class that we call our final focus areas. And those are the risks that we all leave the room with, with assignments to ensure that there's an appropriate risk management process in place. How do we do it? Through an old fashioned Excel workbook. And we get a lot of criticism because we're always being sold by vendors that there are these tools. And, you know, a lot of the tools that we have built into our financial systems today at the company offer those as well. But when you try to just do something as simple as a rating of one to five, looking at definitions that are consistent across the organization, and then you go ahead and add those layers in for region or function, you can very quickly filter out your data and know where your priorities are. Rather than worrying about is it 3.1 or 3.15, you know that that risk falls in the middle. And so I I couldn't agree more with the thesis thesis statement you started with that we may have overcomplicated it. Um, I think we have, and I think we can get back to fundamentals and continue to add value in this space.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I do think, you know, there's there's there are purposes for all different kinds of programs or things like that. But sometimes you just need to ask the questions and hear people just tell you the answer yeah. before thinking about how you're presenting it. Um, I know that's not always the most popular because how you present and what you say ultimately, you know, can determine so many other things. But I, I really what I liked about some of what you've done is that part.
1: Um, yeah. I think another important point is when you sit down to embark upon your risk assessment, whether it's the fifth one or the first one that you're doing, you probably already know intuitively based upon what you know of the organization. And again, whether that's a a specific business function, a particular region, or your global heat map, you probably already know your top three just by knowing what you know about your company. So don't set that aside. Very much keep that in the forefront when you're thinking about the results of the assessment and benchmark yourself. Does it make sense where we ended up?
0: Yeah, that, may, that makes a lot of sense. I also have a problem sometimes where I talk a lot about bias in different contexts, but I often see, because this is what I do every day, You know, my, my I have to take, put some of my biases on, these are the issues I work on, therefore they're the <laughs> most important. They are, but put it to the side. Um, yeah. And I, I find that, you know, so so I absolutely agree. You want to use your expertise, but sometimes taking the step back, especially if it's you know an investigation or an area you spent tons of time on, um, it can really somehow taking that aside and realizing that's not the, the risk that you it's become in your practice or your life is always a, you know, a, a good reality check. And with that, um, i want to switch over to one other topic, another thing you mentioned at SCCE, which is also the next book on my reading list. It's called, it's Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies. Um, and just so anyone knows, I am currently finishing Lisa Beth walker and Steph Toshida's book about raising, raise your voice, uh, raise your game, not your voice. And it's really helpful too, but this is the next one because I've, I'm, I'm one of my life resolutions is to, you know, when I read some more of these. So, four tendencies next on my list. And I just wanna tell you, I did take the pre book quiz. Cool. So after you <laughs> talk a little bit about what the four tendencies are um, for everyone else, then I want to see if but
1: I, you can guess where I landed. I, I was, spoiler alert, I was a little surprised. You were surprised. Okay, that may change my answer then. I initially had a thought. So we'll go ahead, I'll introduce the concepts and then we can talk about where we both fall. Um, so yes, um, the book that I featured, and as part of my presentation at SCCE. Um, it's called The Four Tendencies by uh, Gretchen Rubin. And it provides a framework for understanding how people respond to expectations. And as Lisa mentioned, there is a quiz. You can take it online. It's also included in the book. Um, you can listen to it on audiobook as well, which is actually the first time I listened to it was through an audio version. And then I went and bought the book because I was just so taken by it. And it has impacted my personal life, my professional life in so many ways. And I'll, I'll try to share some of that. But go take the quiz. If you need to pause the podcast and do it, please do. Um, But then you can take it for yourself and you can also fill it out for people you work with or your family members and then learn how to interact with them. But there's four main personality types and everybody falls into a primary and secondary category. So it's important to know you're going to have that primary, like, like that dominant trait, and then you'll have a secondary trait that will influence often how you respond. So there's four tendencies. Um, The most common, which makes up 41% of the population, are obligers. And these are the people who will respond to an expectation, or if you think of it like an ask, simply because you asked them to do it, right? These are probably the folks today that have been vaccinated. Um, These are the folks that are likely reporting issues at your company. Um, They're speaking up because we've talked to them about speak up. So that 41% are obligers, they'll do it because you asked them to. The next uh, largest group are questioners. Uh, So that's 24% of the population are questioners. And these are the folks that have their own internal logistical framework that will allow them to act once it's been satisfied. So these are the question askers. They will have a whole lot of questions. They may drive you crazy, um, but going through that process allows them to reach a conclusion and will ultimately take action based upon their comfort level with how their logistical internal framework was satisfied. So obligers and questioners, they make up 60%. So the remaining 40%, so 19% are upholders These are folks that readily meet expectations. They'll do something because they know it's the right thing to do. They often don't even need to be asked. They just do the things, right? So um, often don't need a lot of training, often don't need a lot of guidance, have typically a good internal uh, framework for ethical decision making, Um, can be easy to work with um, because they're often going to take care of something, but can also burn out quickly. Um, So it's important to understand their role on your team. And then finally the rebels. So the remaining 18% are the folks who will simply not do something Simply because you asked and they literally can't. And I found in, in the book, um, actually there's some folks in my life that are rebels that truly drive me crazy. Um, but reading the book gave me a new appreciation for how they function in life and importantly, how to better relate and connect with them so that you can help satisfy their, um, resistance to an expectation and help them, um, actually be better functioning members of your team where they're more satisfied and their team members are satisfied. So um, as I mentioned, there is an online quiz. You can go and take it. And where I recommend the book is it helps you understand your own personality type and then how you can interact with the folks That are the other types around you, because it's not just understanding others. You have to understand yourself and so that you can meet in the middle and where this book has been particularly insightful for me in the workplace is in structuring our communications. So, again, as ethics and compliance leaders, we're trying to get people to act. Right. We want them to follow the policies, the code of conduct. We want them to speak up when something doesn't seem right. But we can't have one message about speak up because you're not going to reach the four types of, of personalities that are out there. And the book actually includes sample posters of an effective communication campaign. They'll show you why certain ones work, why other ones don't. Um, and it, it can really help influence your communications with others to help inspire action by. By everyone you're interacting with. All right, now will be the moment of truth. What would you guess that I came out as? So I was thinking upholder, but when you said you surprised yourself, maybe obliger? No, I was surprised myself.
0: I thought I was an upholder as well. There was no question in my mind, but I was a questioner. Oh, which I thought was fascinating. But then I realized people say I ask a lot of questions, which makes sense. But I guess as an again, I haven't read it yet, but then I thought to myself, yes, I become an ablo- I become an upholder after, after I feel that and that was sort of my secondary thing. I need to before I just uphold rules, I need to make sure I understand them, what the purpose is, what we're doing, and what the the result is. And that kind of it made sense to me because I am in compliance, but I think about it as ethical decision making first. So mm-hmm. maybe it does relate. So now I'm really excited to learn more about that because that was my surprise. For sure in my mind, I was an upholder. Yeah. And when I saw this, I was a little surprised. So that's why, what about you?
1: So I am a question, I'm sorry, an obliger and an upholder. Mm-hmm. Um, obliger is definitely my dominant trait. Um, you know, there's that, that kind of people pleasing component. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always known that about myself, um, but where I think I do get a little bit of the self-exhaustions on the upholder piece. So the combination of the two of wanting to, you know, make others happy, and then also feeling the obligation to do the right thing, um, you know, we can become the the overworkers, um, you know, kind of killing ourselves, burning the candle at both ends to satisfy all different aspects of our life. Um, but I, I sort of knew that about myself going into it, but when I read the book and understood the personality traits, it, it really stood out to me, and I did learn a lot about myself.
0: Yeah, I wonder if I'd taken it five or 10 years ago, I think I would have been more of an obliger um, over over time because the more I, the more I learned, the more I, I think that's what's turned me from obliger to questioner because the Mm -hmm. more I learned, the more I questioned it. So I guess with that, the last topic in terms of questioning things is you know, when, you know, the things I'm sure that you were doing when you were younger or advice that now you look back at either question it or something else, but as if there was a, like a piece of advice or a thought you'd want to give to someone starting out, or I think about it a lot is, and I love this question advice to your younger self, what would it be?
1: So, you know, my mom used to always say this to me and it made me so mad. <laughs> But I find myself now as a mother of a 12 year old, um, saying it to my daughter, and I also find myself learning that it's true. And it's this phrase, everything will be okay. Um, Change is inevitable um, and rather than resisting it, whether it's a, a change in leadership at your company, disruption in your home life, maybe a change in a relationship, change is hard. Um, But as you go through the process, being open to what that change is presenting to you and trusting the process and realizing that everything will be okay because it always is in the end, I really think can help put some wind in your sails. You know, in the ethics and compliance profession, we, we see how the sausage is made. We see behind the scenes. We see the more difficult aspects of the organization. And we tend to see the sides of people Um, that might be less attractive, right? So we're dealing with the complicated side of work life. And I think if you remind yourself that everyone comes to work with good intentions, everyone makes decisions with good intentions um, and help guide those around you through the process, trusting that things will work out, you can have a much more satisfying career and feel much more proud about what you're pursuing, knowing that you're on a path towards something better and something more.
0: That is actually great advice. I mean, along the lines of what's the worst that can happen is sort of the bad day of it before you get to everything will be okay. You know, It's going to be okay. But I do think it's fabulous advice. And really, thank you so much for all of this and the time that you've taken with us today. Um, Really appreciate it. And on behalf of Mary and me um, and the Great Women in Compliance podcast, thanks so much and have a great rest of the day.
1: Well, thanks, Lisa. I look forward to staying in touch and look forward to connecting with the folks that are listening to the podcast to continue the discussion.
0: Yeah. And we love that. Thanks so much. (laughs) Take good care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.